0: Listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. And I gotta tell you something, people. Showtime has this great series on Sunday nights called City on the Hill. And what makes it extra special is earlier in the day they put it on demand. Now during the week, Joanne and I watch Jeopardy after dinner, but on Sunday there's nothing to watch, so we always get done dinner. And we go, we watch this show And I don't know how she does it Then she goes and watches a Hallmark movie Because this show is so damn intense But my guest is one of the stars of just a great, great series And a, a fantastic cast um, My guest is Matthew Del Negro How you doing, Matt? Hey, Steve, great, man Thank you for having me here Yeah, you know, it's funny I um, First of all, you, you've been involved with uh, so many great, like, series You know, if you go to Soprano's or West Wing Or, you know, you can go on But City on the Hill, when you first got the call for that, did you have any idea that Kevin Bacon was in it, Aldous Hodge was in it, Joe Hennessy? What did you know when you got the audition notice?
1: Yeah, I did. I was aware of the show. Um, I'm actually friends with one of the producers, so I knew knew about the show. And then uh, the way this kind of came about was my agent said there was something in the first season and this was like halfway through the first season something came up and it said like a a local hire in New York uh, for this this you know recurring role but you never know what that means right Um, so she said "I, I think we should we should pass on it and I said hang on a second I said that's that's my my friend is involved with that show. Uh, let me let me see what what the deal is. I spoke to her and she said, you know, it's one of these things where it's a character. You never know what's going to happen in the series. One, you don't know if it's going to get another season. Uh, they they can make promises on certain roles are going to turn out to be something, but you never really know till you do it. Um, and, but anyway, my friend said, you know, this one might be worth you doing that. Because it is the introduction of a character. Like, this guy really has some stuff to do. But the, in the first season, there's just, like, what happens physically with the show is, like, there's just not enough money left over from the contracts that they've signed for, you know, series regulars and all that. So sometimes you're in a situation where you're going, okay, uh, there's no money here, but you're betting on, in this case, the pedigree. And I'm just going... Okay, you got Kevin Bacon, you got Aldous Hodge, you got Tom Fontana running the show, uh, you got Matt Damon and Ben Affleck uh, executive producing. Jen Todd is my friend that I'm speaking about. It's a Barry Levinson. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And I knew that the material was really good, and it was Boston, which I went to uh, Boston College, so I know the town. Um, and and you, for me, I go okay. Let's make a bet on what the material is not on all these other back, you know, okay, you're not going to get paid a ton. Great. But there's potential here for this thing to go if it goes well. And that's kind of what happened. I I went, you know, I did know enough about the project that I had to, you know, I did a, a self tape, which is like what's been happening now with COVID all the time. Some people don't know that, that you do make tapes at home. So I really put a lot of effort into it and felt right for it, but still, you know, you go, you can make a great tape and not get the role. And luckily I got the role. I got there. I guess they liked what I was doing and, um, and it expanded. And then this year they, they turned me into a series regular, which was awesome. I mean, you know, you get, it's like the, there's nothing better than great collaborators and great material. And I have both of those on this show. So I'm, very, very fortunate,
0: I think. Now, what's your take on the self tape? I get different stories. Like, Ray, you know, Ray Abruzzo from The Sopranos. Ray yeah. said, you know, he got the part because it was supposed to be, little Carmine was supposed to be a big fat guy, but then he went in and did some certain look, and he loves the room. He loved getting in the room. He's also old school, he's been around for a long time. Other people say, I love the self tape. Like you said, you made a really good self tape. You can read it. You could have, you know, one of your, if you have a friend who's a director, come in and really kick ass with you what do you which do you personally prefer
1: okay so ray Bruzzo, yeah i agree there's something about going in the room that if you're in the room with decision makers there's something about going in the room and getting those kind of that interstitial stuff that happens which is just like a conversation that comes up or just the presence of being in the room with you know with people um but wh- where I where I kind of maybe differ from that is if you're going in for casting and you're making a tape that's going to get sent to the producers of the show well really that's the same thing as making it at home so then you're going all right where am i going to make a better tape if i go into casting now i have relationships with casting directors so i feel like i could get a couple of takes and we could you know we can do it you can get something good But I also feel like when I'm doing it at home, I have one particular friend and now I've gone out and got my own setup where, you know, we have a really good camera, really good lens. Um, Not that it's about that, but it does look good. More importantly, he and I have known each other for, you know, 25 years, acted together. He's a great actor. We're crazy. We love doing this. So we'll do. I mean, we will do a lot of takes. People are sometimes shocked when they hear, like, we'll do it. We'll treat it like we're a a day on the set. I mean, I'll I'll do, for that city on a hill, I might have done 35, 40 takes. We kept doing it. We just kept doing it because we're like, oh, we got it. And they're like, let's try it again like this. Let's try it again like that. And then sometimes you go through, sift through the takes and realize you're taking one of the earlier ones anyway. But we really, like, you find the character in – in working on it, so I don't know. I've embraced this whole self tape thing at this point, where I feel like um, if I put the effort in and the time in, I can really, uh, I, I can really give something that I'm I'm proud of. And sometimes when you go in the room for casting, it's like you're not getting a lot of shots at it, and you don't feel like you left necessarily with, you know, leaving them with the best work you could do. So.
0: Now, in City in the Hill, you play a detective uh, with a youth task force. And it's so funny because in the last episode when you're driving real slow down the alley, it was such a laid-back policing style. Um, Did you you reach out to any detectives or anyone that works with youth or inner city to actually, once you knew you were a series regular? Because I'm sure when you're just... If you're going in, I uh, might be two roles. I'm sure you're not going to put as much research into it because you're like, I'm going to do all this research and then I'm going to be gone after two. But when you found out you're a series regular, did you reach out to people to to learn more about the the position of, that you're playing?
1: Uh Yeah, actually, I did it. Maybe I'm dumb, but uh the way I look at it is... Uh, so uh So I had done... Let's see the four I did like four episodes, I think, in the first season, and then we didn't know, well, I don't know that maybe the show knew it was getting a second season, but I did not know my fate for a while. But before I knew my fate, uh, I just said on on faith, um, I, I did reach out to some people. Um, and then my thought was this, if this if I don't get if I'm not brought back, what am I going to lose from going and, and doing a ride along with, with guys? Like I'm going to play another cop at some point, I'm sure. So it's going to get put to use somehow. So I, I don't look at it that way, but what I did was um, a, a couple of things. I mean, I through one of the producers on the show. I got hooked up with the actual gang unit in Boston that I'm playing. Now it's 20 years later, uh, more than 20 years later, but I was really lucky, man. I got to go up there. They took me to the projects that we're talking about. They, they changed the names on some of them, but, um, they walked, walked me around, gave me the lay of the land, gave me the history. Um, then I went and I was, I was in an SUV all day with, with, uh, three other guys and, and hanging with them. And they were hysterical and, you know, really funny banter back and forth, but then all of a sudden things would happen and it was like zero to 90 in, in two seconds. Um, you know, just to see the professionalism and then to see like what I'm so glad you picked up on the laid back, uh, kind of demeanor that I had because that's what it was like. These guys are, when you're with the real guys, it's not the cliche of everything is so serious. It's like they're, they're, this is their job. There's a lot of camaraderie. When something happens, they, you know, they rise to the occasion. Um, but it's much like with my actor friends. Like I don't, you know, I don't think if people, imagined what actors are like during the day, it would be what we are. You know, that that's the cliche that you hear, but then there's the actual thing. So yeah, I did that. Then when I was in New York, I went um I went to uh precinct in New York. I went I got with a technical advisor on the show and we met these guys at a precinct and we got to hang with them for like four hours and I just got to pick their brains. Um, I went back to them again this season. I got a couple of ex-NYPD friends. I, I talked to them. I Zoomed with them when it was COVID so I could I could tape it for myself and refer back to it. So that, that stuff all helps a ton. That stuff helps a ton.
0: You know, it's funny, you know, as we watch the show and as I said, me and my wife both love it. And um, Kevin Bacon's just such a prick. And he's, he, I'm a Philly guy. I'm from outside Philadelphia. of He's a fellow Philly guy. You know, everyone loves Kevin Bacon. And he's always, he's a, he's a great guy, even like when he did the, the different commercials he does, but he's such a prick on the show. It reminds me of like, what a jerk John Voight is on Mickey Donovan. I mean, on Ray Donovan. They're just like that. What is he like on set now? Cause I know some actors, I, I know him like McConaughey stays in character all the time. Does Kevin stay in character or what is it like to be around him?
1: No, I wouldn't. I don't know if I would say he's fully in character, but it's not like, you know, I had him on my podcast and he was awesome. You can listen to it. Just such a great guy. And you can see it through the stuff that he does where he's self-deprecating, you know, stuff that he does like on late night shows. He's a very funny guy. Um, He is super professional, uh, very friendly, but not, you know, we're not just sitting there. Yeah, you have some conversations, but it's, he's, he's focused. I mean, he's got so much to do on the show. Uh, Same with Aldis. I mean, they've got so much to do on the show. Um, I wouldn't say he's, no, I wouldn't say when, when that he's like being a prick to people, when the camera's not rolling, not at all like that, but he's, you know, he's focused and, and he's like really the consummate professional, both, both of those guys are they're like just super prepared and um and and good guys you know which which sets the tone for the entire set you know it's when you have when number one and number two on the call sheet are you know good people and and professional and and good at what they do it's like it's a joy to be on that set and i've been luckily on a lot of those and then sometimes you're on some where number one on the call sheet is like a pain in the ass. And you're like, Oh God, this is like a terrible, you know, just like the whole culture of the set is just toxic. You know?
0: Now on that show and this, and Kevin are both, they're both very intense characters, you know, and you are more laid back, but when you interact with them as an actor, do you feel, and you're, you're uh, we're a college athlete, so you know if you play with a bunch of scrubs, you play with a bunch of great players, you would, your level will come up. When you're on a set with something like that where they're just so intense and they're so good, does that, does it, do you kick into a second level? Not that you're not that you're someone who's not always at a certain level, but do you find yourself going to sometimes a height where you go, holy crap, I, I can't believe I got to that high with my acting ability?
1: Yeah, I would say... Um... The, I mean, the drive to bring my best stuff is is internal. So I hope that I bring that wherever I go. I think what happens, you know, when you're talking about it is like playing, you know, when you play with guys, if you're playing basketball, you play with guys that are great, you, you're, you're forced to rise to the occasion. I think with acting, what's great in, in, in that situation is what you're bouncing off of and what's coming back at you is is – maybe more interesting, you know, when you're with someone who's, uh, a dynamic scene partner, it's, it's kind of makes your job easier. You know, what you're putting out is coming back to you in a, in a way that's maybe unexpected, um, forces you to be more in the moment. Um, so, you know, I, I would hope that my preparation and my commitment is there, regardless of what I'm working on. But again, great material, great collaborators. That's kind of what makes your. you know, you you're, you're dependent upon that. You're also dependent upon how they're going to cut your performance and how they're going to shoot your performance. So it's like, it's such a collaborative art that as the actor, you need to do all your work and show up and sometimes you're taken care of, and you go watch the thing, and you you're like, oh, that was great. Sometimes you feel like you did your work, you show up, and you watch the thing, and you go, huh. Oh, I feel like I don't like the takes that they used. I don't I don't like the way they shot me. I don't like, you know, or I just don't like the material or whatever it might be. So you're really, you're it's such a collaborative art form. I don't know if if people are really get that, that it's like, you're, you're kind of, you bring your piece, but then you're only as good as your collaborators, really, you know?
0: Now, as you said, you're an athlete, you played uh, lacrosse, and yeah. were you interested in acting as a kid, or were you driven by lacrosse? Because to play Division One lacrosse, or any sport, is a lot of work, and plus, because you have school, a friend of mine played uh, basketball for University of Pennsylvania, and he said, it's like, it's like you have... A full-time job because you're also went to school and then you travel. And he said, you know, and he's like, you know, I guess I'm not going to get in the bus getting paid, but we should. But for you, I mean, if you were so busy, when did you find your love for acting?
1: Well, I, uh, so I stopped playing lacrosse after, um, you know, I, I played sports growing up and, and by the time I was in high school, it was down to just football and lacrosse. I loved them both. Um, easier for me, you know, I was probably too, as I like to say, skinny, slow, and weak to play Division One football, um, even though I loved it, um, I was able to play lacrosse, and yeah, it did take up a lot of time, which was actually great for the discipline, like, I had a very full schedule, but it forced me to, you know, I would go to the library, like, I would leave my my dorm or whatever at a certain point, And then I'd go to classes. I'd go to practice. I'd go to the gym. I'd go to the library, get my work done. And I wouldn't be back till whatever time at night it was. Um, at a certain point between sophomore and junior year, uh, I, I studied abroad in Italy. Uh, long story short, I was going out with a girl. We broke up over there. My sister had given me a journal. And in, in this journal was really like the first rumblings of, hey, maybe I want to do something other than playing lacrosse here and maybe i want to be a writer maybe i want to be an actor but it, it really was like it it came out of nowhere it wasn't something that i anticipated at all um in retrospect it makes a little more sense i you know i i played a little piano and a little guitar growing up i could, could sing a little bit um but it wasn't like i never thought about this i i just i just i don't even know if i i don't know i just didn't think about it um but then I came back to BC that that uh, fall of junior year. I fell right back in, started playing fall ball, and it was the end of fall ball, and I was running around the practice field at one point, and I just had this thought, like, I don't really want to be here. I wish I'd roll my ankle. And then I thought, this is crazy. Like, So I went to the coach. I told him I was done. Uh, he said to think about it. I said, I have. I, I stopped playing. It was really kind of bizarre because all of a sudden my schedule was open and it was like what i wanted but now you go well what am i going to do with this time and uh my roommate who had never acted before and myself we both went out for play we just kind of said let's go audition for something he gets a lead i don't get anything um i about a month later find out about this other audition i go in and I get the lead in this little one-act play, but it's not even on a, on a stage. It's like in a lecture hall at BC. It's like a two-night performance, whatever. Uh, William Saroyan, hello out there. I did it. I loved it and literally just said, I'm going to be an actor. And, and I was an English major. I started taking film classes. I got a film studies minor. And um, I just said, this is what I'm going to do. And like, you know, I think people thought, like, I, I think it was a little bizarre for the people around me. They're like, wait, you went from playing lacrosse to doing a play. It's like it couldn't be any more 180 than that. Um, but I don't know. I just I guess they say you get bitten by the acting bug. And that's that's what happened to me.
0: Well, you know, you said mentioned something about the discipline. And I think you know, a lot of people don't understand that acting and I used I did stand up comedy professionally for eight years. There's oh. a discipline you know, but you have to sit there, you have to work on your act, you know, now there's a ton of free time, you know, you're driving to gigs, and we would get a little crazy in the 80s at night, the late 80s, I'm not saying, you know, that, but, but there's a discipline, and with acting, there's such a discipline, because, you know, people don't remember, with with stand-up, sometimes people would think, oh, you just make it up every night, like, no, we have an act, we write, and we craft it, and we build it, with acting, it's so much discipline, because just remembering the lines I mean when you started off you know you're you're from the, you're an athlete so you probably knew plays and the discipline but did that help did your discipline from athleticism help you when you started saying I'm going to take this serious and you started having to learn the, another craft because it, it, that's what acting is it's a craft
1: yeah absolutely I, I literally was just having a conversation about this this morning um, the 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 discipline, the drive, the mindset that I got from sports absolutely has helped me in my career because there are, you know, in sports, you get hurt. It's like, suck it up. Don't focus on it. Get back in the game. Uh, You know, there's a season. You're looking toward the championship. You're looking toward the playoffs. It's like, what do you have to do now, two or three months prior to be still standing in November. You know, if it's, if it's in football, it's like, you have to be there at the practice fields in August and in the heat, you have to be in the dirt and all of that. Like that's what it takes to get there. So that mindset has definitely, definitely helped in my career because there are so many times as an actor where you're just absolutely pummeled to the point of, you know, near submission, because it's just so, yeah, it's very competitive, and and it's very, you can be so close and just not get something, um, and that's really, it, it can be really disheartening. I mean, it's, it's, it's rough, um, so that mindset stuff got me through it. At the same time, when I first started acting in the city, I had this this teacher, Terry Schreiber, and he used to say, don't try to be such a straight A student. You know, we don't want to see the guy that's got it all together. So it's like that composure that I learned through sports, which is like, don't let them see you sweat. You know, don't let them see you hurt. Any of that helps with the career, but with the actual work, you actually have to expose the underbelly. You actually have to show the vulnerability. you got to be able to, you know, it's a whole different thing that I needed to unlearn this, this, uh, kind of putting up a good facade to try to open up and show the, the, you know, the messier stuff underneath it. So, you know, it's a, it's an asset and a liability. I'd say more of an asset though.
0: So you you said the city. So is that where you went to the city? Just, is that where you decided? I mean, you, you sit there and you go, I'm going to do this. And a lot of people say they're going to do it. I lived in L.A. for years, and you work with people who say, I'm going to be an actor. And then you sit there, and they're, they're talking. I know a guy who's like, yeah, I'm an actor, and I'm a musician. I'm like, do you go to class? No. I said, do you like record anything? Because you can now. <laughs> no. I'm like, do you audition? No. Do you have an agent? No. I go, I'm not even an actor, and I have an agent. I go, what the hell? You know, there's so many people that say they're going to do it. But So when you went to New York to start, and you said, I'm going to do this, were you gung-ho or were you, you know, or were you half ass into it where people are sometimes like that? Um, I was absolutely gung ho.
1: So what I did was I, I uh, graduated BC spring of 94. I moved back in with my mom. My parents had just split right after I got out of school. My, my dad was nearby, but I went back home, lived with my mom. I worked for a Mason that summer. I laid patios, uh, to make some money. And, um, I ended up doing a, a musical in uh, Wilton, Connecticut, which was not too far away. I, that's a whole story I don't need to go into. it, But I talk, I have a book. I talk about that whole audition process, which was like, you know, it, it, I was like a fish out of water. But somehow it, it ended up working for me. But I ended up doing that. Um, I That fall, through that play, I met a girl who got me a job. I, I learned how to weigh tables. I, I worked at this place in, in Stanford, Connecticut then two nights a week I would I would take a train down to the city um, for these classes. I took like some commercial classes which in retrospect were not very good, but it got me in there. So I would do that two nights a week, still working, you know fully, you know I would just go, I'd get back at like midnight or whatever. and the idea was save up enough save up enough money so that I could move into the city at the beginning of the year. So I moved into the city January 1st, 1995. I found, you know, I scoured the city. I found this this rent-stabilized place on the Upper East Side. It was like a five-floor walk-up. I built a wall and a loft so I could have a roommate and split the rent. And um, people don't talk about that in acting class, but that was like the smartest thing that I could have done. And I really suggest it to people that are going into the arts. It's like, keep your overhead low. And that gives you the longevity to last through the lean years. Cause I didn't make a cent as an actor for, you know, years, years. So, but I was paying 500 bucks a month to live in the city. And it only went because it was rent stabilized by the seventh year I was living in that apartment, I was paying like 632 bucks a month. And then I'd go bartend and I'd make like 400 bucks in a night, you know? So, so it was actually, that's how I afforded to be able to go do all these plays for no money in black box theater or to go do student films or non-union films. It didn't literally did not pay me a dime for years. Like that's what, that's just what you have to do. So yeah, I was, I was totally gung ho focused. There was no, no half-ass about it. I feel like you know I, I just was like this is this is what i'm going to do i'm if i'm going to sacrifice but this is what i'm going to do
0: now you said you you don't work you paid work for years what was the change what happened i mean was there a certain point was what was your first gig that you said all right i mean cuz you know like anything if you're doing it and you're not getting paid you still love it but you, you, you got to get, you got to get a little discouraged and, and especially if your friends are getting parts and you're like, oh man, what the hell? You know, I'm still doing this. When did you start feeling that all your, your dedication and your work started paying off?
1: It, you know, it was in dribs and drabs kind of like the the first things I did, I think that made me any money were commercials and it was easier to get a commercial agent than it was a theatrical agent. And and it was, it kind of um, even that it took me years to get a commercial, but but I remember getting, I kind of didn't get anything, anything, anything. And then all of a sudden, like in, in a month, I got like three, three commercials. And those actually made you pretty good money. And luckily I was so focused at the time that I would just go, okay, I'm not, I'm going to act like that money doesn't exist. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to keep bartending and, and do that. And and I kind of did that a couple of times that helped. Um, that made you just feel like, oh, okay. Someone will pay me to do this. Like someone will pay that. That's a nice external validation. But another thing that didn't involve money, but it involved just quality that really, really was a big one was. Um, through backstage, which was, you know, at the time as a newspaper, you'd get, and you'd go through it every week and, you know, scour through it for like, you know, maybe you'd find eight things that you were right for. And you'd submit your headshot and resume and a cover letter or whatever for all this like terrible, you know, mostly terrible projects that don't pay you. So one of them, I went in for this, it was like a non-union film. I go in and it was going to be shooting in Boston. Actually, it's called the North end. I go in for the lead. I meet the brothers that are filmmakers. It goes well. Uh, I get the job. You know, it's like another one of these non-union things. Who knows what it's going to be? But I thought the material was pretty good. Turns out that the uh, director, Frank Sciotta, uh, was a PA on Casino, and he had gotten the script to Frank Vincent. Frank Vincent liked the script, decided to do it, uh, it turned, so that turned the whole project union. He got his buddy, Tony Darrow to do it. Those guys are both in a bunch of Scorsese films. So then they get the friend Nick Puccio to do it. We, we go up there, Vinnie Paz is in it. And we did this thing in Boston where I actually go, you know, uh, you know, for six weeks or whatever it was. And, and I'm up there, I ended up getting my friend a role in it to play my roommate. And this thing was like, it felt like it was real. Even though it didn't pay me, it felt real. It was good. It was people that I actually knew from movies, you know, Raging Bull and good movies. And it ended up going to like Montreal Film Festival and uh, Boston Film Festival. And it got a little fanfare. And that was really another one of those situations where it was like external validation that it wasn't just me saying I can do this. It's like, oh, I got chosen to do this. And this thing's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, And that helps. And It's like everybody goes like, what was the break? Did did you get the break? And I'm like, no, it wasn't the break. It's a break. You get a series of breaks. That was a big one. Uh, Sopranos was a huge one. Um, You know, Sopranos was the first time that I was able to like, you know, someone would say, what do you do? Before Sopranos – it was a monologue to describe what I did. It was like, well, I'm waiting tables over here and I'm bartending here and I'm taking classes and I'm, I'm trying to be an actor. And, you know, it was like this whole, it took me like three minutes to answer (laughs) after Sopranos. It was like people going, Oh, Hey, cousin Brian, you know? And you're like, Oh, people know I'm an actor. And it was, that was a long time into it. You know, that was like seven years into it that, 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 that happened. Um, so yeah, that was, and again, that wasn't the break, but that was a that was the biggest break that I had in terms of like shifting the whole trajectory of my my career, you know.
0: Now, how did the Sopranos role come about? It's funny, you know. I saw you run the Sopranos podcast, and I think Chris Caldavino was on that same one. And uh, Caldavino was on my show, God, years ago, when I recorded in a studio in Burbank, and he had told me, um, you know, like people had, like, pictures of him, like, like his first day on the set, like, people knew, and he didn't know how they knew it, and he said, everyone was, he was like, what the hell's going on? How did it, how did you get the role? Was it, uh, it as an audition, was it a long process? And I believe that's also one of those shows that it's very secretive. You can't really say anything else. You're screwed.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, actually, the Sopranos thing starts, in a weird way, with that North End movie I was just telling you about. So, those guys, these, the filmmaker brothers had another movie. And after we did the North end, they said, we want you to be the lead of this next movie we're doing. This guy is a a college football, uh, American college football quarterback who goes to Italy and falls in love and all this stuff. I was like, great. I'm perfect for it. You know? So I, I like, you know, pay for myself to go up to Boston, I think two times on bus, you know, we do like table reads, whatever. I'm going to be this guy. Then they bring George Ann Walken in to to cast the movie, and George Ann comes in, doesn't know me at the time, and she decides, I'm not right for this role. Uh, th- she had another guy she thought was more right, and the filmmakers listened to her, and I lo- I didn't get to do this movie that I was basically kind of promised to do. Um, and so I was not a huge fan of George Ann's at that point. <laughs> So flash forward a little bit, she's casting Sopranos. Maybe she was even casting it back then, I don't know. But she brought me in for Sopranos a few times for smaller roles that I ended up doing. And I'd go in, I'd get brought to the producers, I'd go in, never worked out. And then the the, the audition came in for Cousin Brian, and I remember the audition material was a lot of financial jargon. It was like, you know, a paragraph of... financial, you know, talking about, and I was like, huh, you know, all these guys I went to college with working down on wall street, they're, they're coming into my bar. Like it, the bar was full of, you know, guys from wall street coming in. I'm like, I know. I got to be able to do this as well as anybody else. You know, I got to be somehow in the mix for this thing and, and just things about the character that felt right. So I, I gave up my bartending shift for my initial you know, audition with Georgia. I go in, I did it. And she was like, I could tell she liked me for it. So she's like, okay. You know, we kind of maybe even worked on a little bit she calls me back in for the producers. I go over to a silver cup. I go in, I read for them. I feel good. My agents call, they go, you're the front runner. And I was like, Holy God. And all of a sudden now it went from like, I I'm, Gonna be better than anybody for this. And when they told me I was the front runner, I was like, "Wait, really?" You know, it was like this is the Sopranos. So, so they go, "You're the front runner." Is the good news. The bad news is they want you to come back in one last time next week. So then you're like, "Oh man, what what are they looking for? Did they not?" find something that, whatever. So I go back in and it's, you know, I look at the, the, I go to sign in and it's a couple, only a couple of other actors, but they're with all the biggest agencies and and I was not, you know? And, and um, so I'm sitting there, you know, lined up, ready to go in. I'm sitting on a chair, like outside the, the room and I'm kind of like focusing. And as I'm sitting there, someone comes by and pats me on the back and he goes, relax kid. And I look up and it's David Chase And he like walks into the room. I'm like, holy cow. You know, like this, like, you know, it's like, it was, it was crazy. So I go in there, you know, keep the nerves in check, uh, feel good about it. But again, you come out, they're like, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you never know Went, got the train back into the city. Um, ended up getting the call, like not too far after that, that I got it. And it was just. Just huge, a huge, huge moment. You know that felt because that show what was what it was in New York at that time. That felt like uh, just a, a culmination of all the, the work I had put in. It felt like you know that it was that was emotional. My my wife now we were we were engaged at the time. Um, I went by her work in Midtown and I saw her and I like all of her people in, in, in her office. And I was like teary eyed telling her because it was, it felt like such a, such a payoff from all the stuff I had, I had sacrificed because, you know, up until then, like you said, you got guys around you, not even other actors, but people that I went to school with that are working on wall street, that are making real money. And I'm sitting there slinging drinks for them and like, you know, pouring their Guinness. And, you know, I was like, uh, at the 29, 30 years old going like, what am I doing? You know, like, am I really gonna, am I delusional? And then something like that felt again, nice external validation.
0: So you get the Sopranos, but then, you know, it's like most actors would be happy if they got one great show like that in their career, you know? I mean, and then, but then you end up on West Wing. Now, once again, both have a religious, religious following. There's a there's a Philadelphia sports radio host who always talks about how he's watched West Wing like six times. This whole series, I'll probably tweet at him later and say I interviewed you. But what was that experience like? And did that come from The Sopranos or how did this all how did that how did you get on that show? Because once again, a cast, everything, and like now as we said, now the city on the hill too. How did how did West Wing come up?
1: Yeah, so West Wing was. Um... So, so after Sopranos, I finally said, you know what, I got to strike while the iron's hot. My, my goal was always go to New York, train there, and then have a job, bring me to L.A. Um, so after Sopranos, it was like I started to get a little bit of heat. And I thought, OK, now I got to go out to L.A. for pilot season. Um, had just gotten married right when my Soprano stuff came out. I convinced my wife, who's not in this business at all, to quit her job and come out with me because we just got married. I, I came out. I had a whirlwind pilot season, meetings all over town, people like literally going like, oh, can you, you know, Cousin Brian, could you sign an autograph? I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get a show. I got nothing, dude. I got nothing. I, I rifled through money. I was here for four months or so. We, you know, sublet our place and, 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 and you know, did the same out here. I went back to New York, tail between my legs, nothing. Next pilot season, I came solo, crashed on a a friend from college's uh, couch. Uh, I basically got nothing, but I got a couple little things. And one of them was this thing with Ivan Reitman. And it was a pilot. It was supposed to be the next sex in the city. And it didn't go. But I remember on like day three of shooting that, he goes, oh, come on, Mr. Bada Bing. And I go, holy Holy shit. Ivan Reitman knows who I am. He had already obviously cast me and everything, but I'm like, he's seen my work and you realize like, Oh, everybody's seen Sopranos. So the following year, I think it was, um, I was out here for pilot season and amongst going in for pilots, I went in for this, what I thought to be a one-off guest spot on the West wing go in. It's a bunch of political jargon. It's like, you know that that material is dense i go in i felt okay about the audition i didn't even feel great i remember coming out of it thinking like eh. got the job and when i went to the fitting i'm talking to the, the one of the costumers and he goes yeah you know john wells has been bringing people on i was in the kind of the the jimmy smiths campaign trail stuff i was jimmy smiths advance man he goes you know john john wells is kind of like this is almost like the audition to see if he's going to keep you on so i'm like okay so like there you know the pressure goes up you're like wow okay and i had a lot to do in that first episode and it was all of these like crazy walk and talks where i'm leading down these hotel corridors I'm leading the charge with this like political jargon, ba 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 ba, rat a tat tat, and it's me, Jimmy Smith, Bradley Whitford, Janine Garofalo, Terry Polo, and I'm just like, holy crap! So, so out of pure fear, I would, I was so prepared, and it ended up going really well. Like I felt loose, I, I, I like never had a problem with the lines or whatever. I think it was literally like, oh my god, I'm going to be on The West Wing. These people are super smart and I don't want to be the guy that gets, you know, ends up being the fly in the ointment on this incredible show. So I, it, I guess it went well. They brought me back for the finale of that season, which was season six. And then they invited me to the, the rap party. So I'm at the rap party. I still live in New York at this point. I had, I had driven a car out here. So I'm literally getting in my car to drive cross country back to the East coast the next morning. And one of the executive producers goes, uh, I said, you know, good night. Thank you for having me. He goes, all right, we'll see you. We'll see you at the end of the summer. And I go, really? I go, could you put that in writing? <laughs> and he's like, we'll see you at the end of the summer. And I'm like, okay. So I go back, no official word, but I'm like, okay. And then they called me at the end of the summer. They said, well, you know, we're going to guarantee you three out of the first five episodes. I came back out, crashed on my buddy's couch. That just kept going. They just kept bringing me out, and then and then we ended up deciding to move out. So my wife came. And we like we had a place in New York by that point. We sold it, came out here, and that was like October of um, 2005. And um, and then unfortunately that show ended, and it was like we thought it was going to spin off, and they were going to do what they did with ER, which was also run by John Wells at the time, and and it didn't happen. The show went away and unfortunately that was it. But, um, you know, so I, I I have a fictional office in the White House at this point. That's how I ended.
0: Well, you know, you go over your IMDb and and you've worked on so many great shows and, you know, just like, I mean, you know, Rizzoli Niles was a good show. It was a fun show, a great cast. I mean, you know, what is it like, what is it like? Do you ever sit there and say when you're jumping, you know, from show to show, like you're on Scandal? You know, you've just been on, you know, NCIS LA. I mean, what do you? What is it like when you're going from set to set and you're like, holy crap, I'm I'm around really good material all the time. I mean, do you sit there and take a second and pat yourself on the back and say this is awesome, or do you sit there and go, well, um, it's just a guest spot, so I don't know what's going to happen next.
1: Um. Maybe a combo of those two things. I think there's uh, there's a ton of gratitude I have, like those shows that you mentioned. There's another show on Showtime that I loved called United States of Terror that I did the second season on that. And, you know, it's like Tony Collette and John Corbett and Rosemary DeWitt. And um, uh, uh, just just incredible. I'm, I'm blanking on her name right now, who won the Academy Award for Room. Um, oh, my God. Anyway, we had, uh, she, uh, I can't think of it. Um, she, but, but just incredible actors, incredible material. Like you said, scandal was one of these things that I, I didn't even realize what a huge show it was until I was on it. Um, and yet always going like, I'm a guest. I'm a guest on somebody else's in somebody else's house and I'm a recurring guest. I've, they're giving me good material, but I always felt like I want more. And then in, in 2017, I got to do uh, Goliath uh, season two of Goliath uh, with Billy Bob Thornton and uh, the showrunner, Larry Trilling, just a tremendous director, really collaborative. That was an incredible experience where I felt like I had a lot to do. And then I followed that up with the show called huge in France on Netflix. It was a comedy, but the role was, it, it was like, they gave me so much to do. I had such a blast. So, and, and then now city on a Hill. Um, you know, I feel like the progression has been such gratitude to work on good material. Like I said, that's kind of the first step, great material, great collaborators. And then, it was always like, okay, but now I, I want them to give me the ball more. I want the ball more. And I felt like, particularly on Huge in France, it was like they gave me the ball and then some. I mean, I, I got to run the gamut in terms of what I was able to do on that show. And and that's fun. Like, you, you know, I think in, in other careers, you talk to people and the, people are like, yeah, I can't wait to retire. Like, I, they want to do less. I feel like as an actor, you want more. Like, I, I, I want them to... I want to be loaded down with with the the work that I have to do for a particular role, so that's been welcome. And I always, you know, continue to be like, you know, first of all, very thankful that I get to be on these great projects, and then second of all, hopeful that people will see what I'm capable of and, and hopefully give me more and more material you
0: know? well it's funny you know you have the audiences we talk everybody knows the Sopranos you're also on Teen Wolf my friend Tom Choi was on that I oh, know, yeah. me and Tom used to wait tables at Planet Hollywood in Beverly Hills years ago but that also probably opened you up to a new crowd because that was on MTV so you have a whole younger crowd what is that like when all of a sudden you know you're getting recognized by young people and you're like wait are these kids oh, watching the Sopranos
1: you know, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's like I always forget that. When I, I, but yeah, that was another one similar to Scandal. I I didn't when I went in for Teen Wolf, uh, I knew it was going to be a pretty big arc on, on the show. But I didn't know that the show, truthfully, when I had the audition, I didn't even know the show existed. And I remember going on. Netflix and getting the pilot. And I was like, let me just see the tone of the show. My wife watched it with me and we go, huh, this is actually pretty good. Like, like I, I totally was like Teen Wolf. I'm like, to me, that's Michael J. Fox. You know, it's a comedy. I watch it. And I was like, Oh, this is a cool twist on it. So I still, I got the job, had no idea. It was this like rabid fan base. And that first of all, the kids on that show, there were a lot of talented kids And, and the show was so loved and still is to this day. And now what's happening is like my nieces who are in high school were like, Oh my God, did we start watching Teen Wolf? And we, (laughs) we just saw you on it. And, and, you know, it's one of these things where the the best story I could give you is, um, you know, I always think like, Oh yeah, that was like a job that I did, but it was kind of, I I don't know. I, it's in a different place in my mind, but I think it was, one of the summers I was still working on it. We were back East. We were in long Island and we were at this, like this beach club and our kids were going to a camp there. So one day I, it's like a, I think the show was maybe on Sunday nights. And so it was a Monday morning and I, I go to drop my son there and I get out of the, the, the the parking lot and we're walking towards where the camp counselors are. And they're all like teenage kids. And they start, they start (laughs) literally, I'm not, I'm not, bullshitting you. They start clapping and I turn around to like, look who they're clapping for and they're clapping for me. And I'm like, what the hell are they doing? And I had shot like three or four months prior, I had shot a scene where styles who's like my, my son on the show's best friend. Is, yeah. I don't know what happened, but I'm in a hazmat suit and I come in and I, and, you know, I kill this guy and I save styles life. And I, and, but I, it was out of my mind. I had shot it like four months ago and they're clapping and I go, what, what's going on? They're like, you did it. You saved styles. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is what I've become. Like what What is happening? It was so, so funny, man. It was like, people love that show. And there, there are just more generations coming up that love it. So yeah, it's, it's cool. It, TV is an interesting beast, man, because you're in people's living rooms. So they, they think. They know you, and there's, like, a, a certain relationship there that's um, sometimes surprising. Sometimes, like, if you play a character that's not such a good guy, people have this, like, subconscious thing. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Wind River, but I play a guy who's not such a, a great guy, and people are like, oh, you're, you know, you're a total scumbag. <laughs> like I'm just <laughs> acting, man. You
0: know? Now, you wrote a book, 10,000 Noes. What yeah. made you decide? What made you decide to write a book? I mean, you know, it's funny. You know, I want to introduce you to my friend Rich Redmond. He's uh, Jason Aldean's drummer, and he wrote a book called Crash Course for Success. And it follows, you know, his. He's been drumming his whole life, and you know, the whole thing of, you know, how to be positive and stuff like that. And you know, a lot of people are writing these books, and it, they really come across to the business world because once again, people don't understand that actors and musicians, it is a business. That's why it's called show business. What made you decide to write the
1: book? Well, the book came about through the podcast. I had a guest, John Gordon, who's written like 20 something books. I think like 10 of them have been bestsellers. He happened to see a piece of my writing and very generously, I think he saw something in it. He said that his publisher had seen. When we did the interview, I did something on Instagram and his publisher said to him, like, oh, that guy should have his own book. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. But he goes, yeah, take this material of yours and send it to my publisher. And I was like, really? Okay. So I sent this little, it was like a 30-page something that I had written based off a speech I had given. And, and um, the guy liked it. Uh, he said, are you going to be on the East Coast? We were that summer. I went to Hoboken. I had lunch with them he said, what would your, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I actually have always wanted to write something like even predating that and predating the podcast. I always felt like, God, I have so many lessons I could give from all of the stuff I've gone through as an actor. I've just been rejected so many times. There have been shows that were supposed to go that didn't go like just, just weird stuff happens when, you know, in any, in any career, really, but as an actor, it's pretty extreme. And I've always thought, you know, there's, I would like to help people that are coming up through this, or even in other fields, like how, how do you get through it with the downtimes? Because I've had to do that. Um, And so I, I told him what I wanted to do. He said, all right, write a proposal. I didn't really know even the format of a proposal. So I called a friend of mine who was writing a book. I'm like, Hey, can you send me your proposal? So I basically took my material and infused it into his proposal. And I, I sent it to them and they liked it and they, you know, uh, they, they made me a publishing deal. And I gotta say, it was like the first call with them, uh, I'm on with all of them and I said, okay, so how's this work? You know, what are we doing? And they go, okay, so you're going to write 55,000 words. And I was like, wait a second. What? I don't know if I could do 55,000 work. And and you know what? It was the most – it was a really cool process for me. It was very therapeutic. Uh, you know, I, I did something where I kind of tell my stories, but I also – because I've had this podcast for three years – and it's all about overcoming rejection and it's all these really impressive people in a bunch of different fields, you know, there's Navy SEALs, there's people in my profession, there's pro athletes, there's, you know, cancer survivors, all that stuff. I, I would then pull quotes from guests so I could, and I would sometimes tell tidbits of their stories because I felt like, you know, if I haven't won an Emmy or an Oscar, nobody gives a shit. Right. And which I don't, which turns out not to be true. But so my thought was, let me give you my stories, but let me also say, like, it's not just me saying it, it's, it's this CEO of this company had the same experience and this Navy SEAL had a similar experience and this, you know what I mean? And so the culmination of it all, uh, the idea was just to help the reader realize like, they're not alone if they're getting knocked down. They're not alone if they're feeling overwhelmed, like that's just that's the gig. That's what it is. And your job, there are things that you can do to help yourself get through that, those tough times. And, and I've, you know, fortunately or unfortunately been forced to learn a lot of methods and tools to get myself through a lot of rejection because I've had a lot, you know, and, and I've still been, I'm, I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones, and I've had a lot. So you can only imagine what people out there have, have had to go through, you
0: know. Now, your podcast, it's funny because, you know, in I'm in the business world also, and, you know, people now are doing podcasts in the business world, but it's South Jersey, you know, like, you know. But yours, I've seen, you know, you had Jake Weber on, you, had, you know, Kevin Bacon. You've had different people on. Um, and I always – it's been around for a while, which is good. You've been there you said, a little over three years. I've been doing this for 10 and i always laugh cuz like you know i know a lot of comics who they do one for 6 months and then they get frustrated and they stop it goes back to the people who are acting in la who don't have an age and who don't you know <clears throat> what made you decide to do a podcast and, and 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 what was it like for you to sit there and all of a sudden go okay you know this is me like you know i mean for me i get great guests so i don't i don't have to do anything i just to, i just ask questions but yours seems much more in depth than talking about someone's career what made you want to do that? And then how was your first few episodes? Were you shitting yourself the first few times or what?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, hats off to you for doing it. I, I, I started scrolling through your list and I was like, man, you, you've had some really cool guests and, and you have so much volume. Um, so the thing that really brought it about was I was working on Scandal. I wasn't under contract, but they were using me a lot. And, I was doing that movie I told you, Wind River. I get a call from my agent. They go, listen, uh, Shonda wants to bring you back next year. They're going to bring you back in a big way. They're doing 16 episodes. They're going to shoot these episodes. They're going to break for Carrie's baby, and then they're going to do these episodes. I was like, oh, awesome. So we had just been in the process of moving to where we live now. I was like increasing my, you know, my my monthly uh, overhead. And I was like, Oh, but you know, I've got this coming." And all of a sudden, I don't know why I still don't know why, but it, it my storyline pretty much kind of went away. I did like three episodes thinking I was going to do a lot more. And that pilot season, um, it was 2017. It was, I don't know if you remember, there was like hashtag Oscars. So white, Um, which was, I thought, you know, great for the world, terrible for Matt Del Negro, you know, in terms of like being the head of my household and booking any jobs. I couldn't, I I just couldn't get a job. I felt good in the rooms, but it was like crickets. Nobody wanted me. So I'm like, you know, I'm really feeling like the rug is pulled out from under me. I I don't know when I'm going to work next. And I started to get mad that I had to wait for people to hire me to do something creative or something that inspired me. And I had a friend who had a a podcast that was doing pretty well. I started picking his brain. I had done voiceovers, So I started picking the sound engineers brains and what do I need to do logistically and all that. And I really started thinking about it for like six months, but I was hemming and hawing. I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this but I was scared. And I remember being with my brother and my sister, we we're out on a walk and my brother goes, so what's up with, like, why aren't you doing this? And I was like, well, I was like, I honestly, I'm, I'm, you know, a little bit scared to do it, like uh, whatever. And he's like, he's like, you made out with a dude in front of millions of people on scandal. He's like, what are you afraid to? You're afraid to get on a microphone and talk. And I said, you know, And my sister started laughing, and I go, you know, when you're an actor, you're interpreting other people's writing. That's the job. You're an interpreter. When you get on the mic, that's like if you listen to the podcast, that's me. It's very exposing. It's very vulnerable, and I think that was a like that's interesting the way you asked the question. It was a really interesting shift, and it it was it was a hard hoop. To jump through. And, um, I worked actually the the way I finally pulled the trigger. I worked my, I I ended up getting a job. So I said, I was going to do this. I ended up getting Goliath and my first day on set, I worked with Mark Duplass who ended up being a guest on the show. And he goes, um, we started talking and he's telling me about he and his brother Jay and how Jay is like very precious with his writing. And Mark is like, I just throw it out there. I just get it done. So I told him about the podcast. He's like, yeah, you gotta just, you gotta just throw it out there. Just, just do it. And and the next morning I came out to my laptop and my microphone, I hit record and I just started talking and I just started saying like introducing myself and talking about what I wanted this thing to be. And it was like a 17-minute riff, and when I was done, I kind of got to the end. I didn't have anything. I hit stop, and I sent it to the guy that was the editor that my buddy used, who was just like going to you know make it sound a little bit better. And I sent it to him, and I go, uh, "That's episode one." And thank God I did that and I put it out. It was I was a total bonehead in terms of like business acumen, thinking about what it was going to be. All I wanted to do was just like follow my inspiration. Right. And I ended up having a couple of other interviews and the interviews were great. Like I love having these conversations. By the time I heard that first one back, it was already out there. And I was like, Oh my God, how could I do that? I, I freaked out. Like if I had listened back to it before I put it out, I probably wouldn't have a podcast right now, but I just said, screw it. I threw it out there and it's like, it's like the best thing that ever happened. I mean, the the thing has opened me up in so many ways, like in ways that I couldn't, you know, the book coming about, but also other things where I just didn't foresee how much it would end up benefiting me in ways that were, some of them were just for my own soul and some of them ended up being like business wise. It helped, you know, that's awesome.
0: I want to thank you for uh, coming on today. And uh, you know, so I'm glad you had the podcast. And so people, now your website is matthewdelnegro.com. You can get to find find the podcast that has all your information. I know you're on Instagram and Twitter. What are your uh, call tags? Oh,
1: yeah, so website matthewdelnegro.com, and then there's also ten thousand nose.com, which gets you everything. Uh, Instagram is at Matty Dell, M-A-T-T-Y-D-E-L, and Twitter is at Matthew Del Negro.
0: So people, go check out Matt Matty D. My bartender at the Blue Room in Burbank's name was Matty D. Um, go check him out. Go watch City on the Hill. It's awesome. If you don't have Showtime, go buy it. I think you can get the first season for like 22 bucks and then one whatever. Just go, go to IMDb. Look up all his stuff. So follow him. Follow him on Twitter. Listen to his podcast. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 850 episodes. Also, email me at, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter's at CooperTalk. Instagram's at CooperTalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.